You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Oh, guess what day it is? Guess what day it is? Huh? Anybody? Mike, 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 Mike. What day is it, Mike? <laughs> Welcome to Earth Station One, a weekly podcast dedicated to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and much, much more. Sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hey there, Station One listeners, and welcome to another episode. This is our REM at 40, actually technically 42, but we're talking about their the 40th anniversary of the release of their first EP, which is Chronic Town, and that was released in December of, two, God, 1982. Gosh, you know, that makes me feel really old because I only saw them like a year and a half later, and, you know, it was... Really interesting to think about REM being that because REM has been a mainstay for me and it's going to be a lot of fun to talk all about REM and we got a great crew to talk about it. Of course, Mr. Mike Gordon is here. Howdy. And, you know, at least he's been to Athens, Georgia, you know, I have been, I've been, I have been to Athens. Yes. Yes, exactly. So, you know, something good came out of Athens then. It's good. (laughs) Yeah, I didn't I didn't stick around. Nope, 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 nope. But it's pretty cool. And of course, joining us, friend of the show, Mr. Kevin Cafferty is here. Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> oh, I see what you did there. Yeah. At least you didn't do it. You were a shiny, happy person for being here tonight. <laughs> I'm very excited to talk about REM. I love them so much. It, it's well, pretty... I was, was going to say this goes out to all the ones I well, but... Yes. Uh... Yeah. Okay. We can, we're okay. done with all that, right? If we if we do this any longer, <laughs> it's the end of the world as we know it. So it's okay. Yeah, okay. All right. That's boom. That's, but I feel fine. <laughs> that's you up. Exactly. So don't fall on me, man. It's cool. So we're awesome. It's going to be a lot of fun, and we definitely would love to hear from you guys tonight. Please write us feedback at earthstation1.com. Definitely would love to hear from you. You might notice that something's a little different with the show. We started with this, our last episode, we are changing the format of our station one a little bit, and you're going to notice slight changes here and there. Um, We're going to be tweaking the show and everything, and we're actually bringing more compact, more dense shows to you guys. Well, many people have said we were were, were dense for years already. (laughs) (laughs) Kevin was shutting his mouth right now. I could tell it. He was like, nope, don't say it. Don't say it. But it's we're too many jokes. <laughs> it's true. It's true. And it's going to be a lot of fun with the new format. And thank you guys for putting up with it and joining us for this. So we're basically going every every couple of days where you're going to be getting a new episode of our station one. It's going to be coming out twice a week now. And we're going to be doing um, an episode earlier in the week. And then we're going to have one later in the week. So kind of a la what Mark Marin does with his interviews on his podcast, but ours are not as important as his are. So, but you know, it's going to be a ton of fun anyway, but as we like to say, you now can find us up on YouTube and you could also find us up on many podcast players, anywhere you find a podcast First station one is there and now you're going to get double the episodes. So it's going to be a ton of fun. And we want to thank you guys for it. If you get a chance, please leave feedback or a thumbs up on YouTube. 
would be great or a like or you know a review would be awesome would really really appreciate it we got some great feedback um from last week's show with jeremy miller it was awesome hanging out with him and talking about the cooking program he's doing and the film festival in virginia and we just got a lot of great folks you know saying hey thanks for doing that and jeremy was awesome and one person said i couldn't believe little ben siever has grown up like that already so it was actually it was kind of fun to do and you know what we're gonna bring a lot of cool stuff to you guys over the next couple months you know we're already scheduled out already i think almost to summertime so i think we got a lot to talk about and it's gonna be fun taking you guys along for the ride Speaking of taking you guys along for the ride, I want to do a big shout out to our patrons. Our patrons are our lifeblood here on Earth Station One and also as part of the ESO network. And, you know, we couldn't do this without you guys. You guys keep the lights on. You're enabling us to do more exciting stuff on the show, like the new format or the YouTube channel or some other things we have coming up that we can't talk about yet. But it's going to be a lot of fun to see if... The, you know, us change, see us grow, and our patrons are a part of this that's helping us do that. And you too can help support the station for as little as a dollar a month. That's right, folks. One dollar a month, and you get these shows a couple days early. You also get shows like, you know, Earth Station DCU Classics. You get Rants and Raves, the fine folks at, of course, the Watchathon with Rassilon. You know, it's kind of all really cool stuff that you get coming up here on you know the patreon and you know what more stuff is coming we have plans for other shows and might even throw in a bonus you know rants and raves sometime we've been promising it for quite some time so mike and i will get around to doing that eventually too so you mm -hmm. guys could do that and like we said for as little as a dollar a month you can enjoy the content also and you know all you have to do is go to patreon.com slash eso network thanks as we like to say and you know, I'm a I'm a patron and I will say to people, it's like being in a in a cool secret club. So Exactly. You know, it's a secret secret handshake club, as we like to call it. <laughs> so and thank you, Kevin, for helping support us. We do appreciate oh, wow. you. Thank you for all the awesome content. There you go. And it's pretty cool too. And you know what? Speaking of cool, new Tofosi sunglasses. That's right. Winter's here. As Kevin was telling us before we got on the air tonight, it's snowing up in Boston. And you know what? Sunglasses are still cool because, you know, it gets very bright in the, in the snow. It has glare and everything. And our friends at Tifosi Optic have the, just the glasses for you. And if you're like me who needs prescription glasses, Tifosi Optical could take care of you there too. All you have to do is go to TifosiOptics.com and find out what they have. They have some amazing holiday deals going on. And on top of these deals, your friends at Earth Station One are going to give you 10% off. That's right. All you have to do is put in the coupon code EarthStation1. And you know what? It's pretty cool. You get 10% off your whole order on top of the sale stuff. 10% off not just one pair of glasses, your whole order. That's pretty awesome. Check it out. Fozyoptics.com. Okay, Mr. Mike. Ready to talk about REM? Yeah, let's or, do it. Let's do it. Or should we refer to them as, of course, Mike Stipe, Mike Mills, Peter Buck, and Bill Barry. It's pretty awesome. Got a great foursome there. I think it's pretty amazing that 
we, you know, you got this out of Athens, Georgia. I think pretty much, I think they might be tied for the top band to come out of Athens because I think B-52s is up there with them also. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm just going to say right off the bat that I did not get introduced to them until much later. I think uh, the first album that uh, I can recall from them is Life's First Pageant. Um, it was kind of a perfect time for me to, to and for them to hit and for them for me to experience them because that album came out in 86 and that was my first year in college. So, I mean, talk about uh, the perfect college band, right? Like, um, and, but I mean, there was a, that was their fourth studio album. So there was a, a few years, uh, five, in fact, that, uh, they were around, uh, that I, I wasn't aware of. I mean, I think I'd heard radio for a year up, um, before, but I, you know, I, I can't, I don't know if it really, you know, it didn't really hit me to the extent that I was like, oh, wow, I need to check these guys out. Um, so, um, so yeah, m- my experience with them, uh, came much later. My first experience with them came much later. Um, but Kevin, what about you? When, when did you experience REM for the first time? Well, I think I'm a little younger than you guys. So for me, it was, I think it was 1987. I was about 11 years old. And I had a paper route. Oh, you are so much younger than us. <laughs> you are, you are much younger and than yeah. this, is, this is one of those core memories. I remember uh, at the time I was listening to a lot of top 40 music on my Walkman. Uh, for, for younger listeners, a Walkman <laughs> is sort of like an iPod, but it just got the radio and you'd play tapes on it. And I started experimenting with the lower end of the dial just because, you know, you're doing a paper, you're just kind of walking around. And I remember I got to one of the college stations uh, a station called WJMF, which is no longer exists, but it was out of a uh, college called Bryant University, which was close to my house where I was growing up. And I heard it's the end of the world as we know it. And I feel fine. And I had, I, I genuinely had at that point, it was the greatest song I had ever heard in my life. <laughs> it completely blew my mind. I remember running and I didn't know who it was because they didn't back it out. So I remember running home and getting the phone book to look up the radio station's number, to call the radio station. Oh, that's and be awesome. like, you know, we had to do people. <laughs> yes. Who did that song? And like the DJ had switched. So it took a while for me to find them. And then like from then on, they were, they were my favorite band, like all through high school. Uh, so that would, that was around like when documented. So that was when they were kind of easing into the mainstream, I would say, oh, yeah. I, I think, I think Mike, you caught them when they were still in their Beatles of college radio phase. Uh, but I, you know, I went back and completely devoured everything they had done up till then. They were my first concert, even. Really? Wow. Yes. That's okay. Awesome. I want to. I was definitely want to get to that. Was it on that tour, or it was on the Green Tour? Okay, um, gotcha. And it was at a place called Great Woods in Mansfield, which I think I know, uh, I know it well. Yes. I don't think it's called Great Woods now, right? It, it is not, but it, it was then. And, <laughs> it still um, is to me. Uh, <laughs> and I saw uh, them on their I, last tour there as well with much better seats. I saw, uh, I said, I went to a few shows there. Um, saw the Sugar Cubes there. That was amazing. Um, probably my best experience at Great Woods. Anyway. Oh, with, with uh, Kill and New Order, right? Yes. Were you there? Yes. yes. <laughs> That's funny. That's so cool. I had no, we might have been sitting right next to each other. We have no idea. Mike, what about you? When was, what was your first experience with REM? First experience with REM was because of my parents, actually. Um, they used to listen to a lot of alternative radio and progressive radio stations, as they used to call them back in the 80s. And they used to call it alt rock. And 
college rock and stuff. And we had a radio station in Washington, D.C. called WHFS. And it was, you know, basically it was one of those legacy stations that had been around since the late sixties. And, you know, it was, you know, they freeform radio where the DJs brought in their own albums and played their own stuff. And they played this song called radio free Europe in 1983. And it was amazing you know i heard it because at the time i was a sophomore in high school and it was awesome to, it was just like nothing i had ever heard before and the singer the beat and it was not like anything you heard on mtv it was not like anything you heard on regular radio and i literally i went out and i picked bought that album i picked up uh, murmur and it was probably came out like a month or so before. And it was amazing to listen to it. You know, it was, you know, the, the lyrics, the singer, because a lot of the music was very fast and everything. But Michael Stipe's singing was almost like it didn't fit in it. It was almost like he was like going purposely going slower than the music. And it was hard sometimes to understand what he was saying he was almost like mumbling in a lot of ways and it was it was just awesome you know being able to watch them um being you know on david letterman for the first time and michael stipe wouldn't face the audience and you know and you know or when dave came out to talk to the band Mike Stipe wouldn't talk to them. They were talking to Peter Buck and Mike Mills and Bill Berry. And it was just, it was just awesome. And, you know, being a 16 year old kid, it's like, these are the most awesome people in the world, you know? And, <laughs> and it was awesome. And it's like, my uncle already had lived, was living down here in Georgia. It's like, Oh, Athens, I know where that is. You know, that type of thing. So I, even more hero worship. And then being able to go see them in concert, um, I think it was in January of 1984, and being snuck into a bar called The Bayou in Georgetown, and being able to go see them, and be, they were the they were the opening band. I don't even remember who they opened for, and it was just they were just awesome, and I fell in love from there. And I've been addicted to the band ever since. But it's funny, too, because I waned from them a bit towards the end and everything. So it was just. Well, like, we'll definitely. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about, you know, as they as they progress. But I want to I want to dial it back because obviously you both, um, even though you started in different places uh, with different albums, I would imagine you loved them enough and you were interested enough that you went back and to their first album, their first recordings. And I'm wondering, like, especially of Chronic Town, uh, since we're, you know, sort of marking that anniversary, if there's like, is there, what do you notice about Chronic Town as far as their, over the releases them as to what a, a prediction of what they would become or were they still raw or um, like, what was the, what's the, what's the experience of uh, listening to Chronic Town like, Kevin? I think Chronic Town emerges pretty fully formed. One of the things I find interesting about, like if you go back to REM and you hear their early demos, they kind of 
had about a year because I think Mike mentioned like they started in 1980 and I think they had like a year's worth of songs that they never really put out which were a bit kind of more standard uh song structures like what a band would do and I feel like once they got to Chronic Town and uh the single they put out before that uh which was Radio Free Europe backed with Sitting Still uh they had figured out like they had unlocked it and they were kind of like they unlocked what was special about them, I think, with Chronic Town, which especially that initial run of albums for REM and, and that EP, I, I feel like is nearly flawless. Like it's one of the great runs of albums in American music. It is um mm-hmm. the the album itself is is what three uh, five uh, sorry, five tracks, is that right? Five. Five tracks, yes. Yep. Yeah. And so I mean uh, so you said all like as an EP, all five of those. I, to be honest with you, I didn't even recognize a lot of the titles. So that's how like a novice of REM I am. But um, I mean, but they're all solid because I don't think there's any quote unquote. There's no no hit, hits on it. It's for sure. Um, gardening at gardening night. At night. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <We're> both, <laughs> it's funny. Yeah, gardening at night's probably the biggest one. You know, the most recognized because they, you know, they've played that multiple times in concert and. I think it it's just it's such a good a ballad for REM also. And uh Wolf's Lower, I think, is one of their really outstanding tracks as well. Um I think I think Guarding at Night's the one that shows up on the best of compilations though. It, yes. If it's the one from Chronic Town that shows up the most. Mm-hmm. Um I think it was, you know, the IRS years it shows up and everything. And it's such a great great song and it it shows what rem was going to become you know with the first couple albums and everything even more than you know you know carnivals of souls or but i also like one million too it's a great song i do think mike that uh chronic town did not make the splash that murmur their debut album made Mm. however like murmur is one of those kind of perfect 10 out of 10 albums i believe it was a big deal at the time that rolling stone uh listed that as the best album of 1983 over thriller um and because there there was a lot of bold statement there's a lot of brouhaha of like like who are these upstart that we've never heard of that (laughs) and so i i don't think i think chronic town suffers a little bit by coming immediately before murmur because murmur is so perfect and so iconic Mm -hmm. it is every song on murmur is pretty is perfect in a lot of ways and it's to some people that's the perfect rem album and more than the poppy years later on and it's it's interesting because you have a lot of different camps with rem and you know that you have the irs people versus the sony people and you know and it, there's always and it, that period where like the band quote unquote sells out because they become popular. Right. And well, they start exactly. doing music videos and are on MTV and, you know, and everybody's like, and they're selling out arenas. And then that the, the early fans are always like backlashing against that a little bit. Right. Well, it's kind of interesting too, because with REM, you don't see REM actually in really in any of their videos until um, much later until like the one i love and stuff like that that was one of the first that had them in it because even end of the world as we know it video you know didn't have them in it it had this kid you know going through this old house and everything 
what I find interesting about that too is with REM, it wasn't an overnight sensation. I feel like it was a very slow build it was. for them to become a, a big mainstream band. And I think they were arguably for a period of a few years in the late eighties, early nineties, like one of the biggest bands in the world. And, but that they, they didn't get a top 10 hit until their fifth album and uh, losing my religion didn't come out until like two albums after that. It's, it's interesting with REM how it's almost like it's hard to say that they sold out because it was so incremental with them in terms of like releasing videos. And now they're going to lip sync in videos and now they're going to do something that gets played on top 40 radio rather than rock radio. It's very interesting too, when you compare it to something like Nirvana who hit big with their second album, but with Nirvana, it was like they had come out of nowhere and suddenly they were on the cover of every magazine. I feel like with REM, it was a gradual progression. Yeah. Oh, it's it a good way like to put six it. Years to become an overnight success, right? Yes, pretty much. <laughs> and it, it uh, was, and it was funny too. Cause like Mike Stipe used to swear up and down. He would never lip sync in a video. And then you see shiny, happy people. <laughs> Yeah. I think <laughs> Losing My Religion was the first video he lip synced in and it was he yeah. made a, it was a big deal at the time. He was doing interviews about lip syncing in it because Stand on the previous album was a very big hit. Um but the video was a little more, you know, they were just they were all dancing and everything. Else. Yes. So. Well, they they certainly have a lot of cred um coming from a college town, a legit college town in uh in Georgia, which you wouldn't think would be that progressive, but in this case, uh, since they are on kind of riding the backs of, I think, what, um, six years earlier, the B-52s made like their debut from out of Athens uh, and made it kind of started to get big and everything. Um, so, so it was not unprecedented, you know, no. um, they weren't just this sort of like Georgia band, right? They were more of a, of a college band. Um, come from a college town talking about like, I don't know, college topics, right? Like it wasn't I, like they, they weren't, they weren't just like saying like, I mean, later on maybe, but they weren't just having songs like, you know, like about love and getting, having, you know, meeting a girl and all that kind of stuff. Right. They were, they weren't doing pop songs. Well, here's where I disagree with what you're saying, Mike, is I think Southern iconography is so essential to REM, especially in those early years. Um, in terms of like, not necessarily like cars and like, I think one of the things that set them apart was they weren't singing about cars and girls, but I think the experience of living in the South and uh, they used a lot of colloquialisms in their lyrics, um, even up to like automatic for the people is a slogan from a barbecue restaurant in Georgia. So I, I do think there is something essentially interesting Southern about REM, um, but it's not the usual stereotype you would think of as the south no right it's a it's a contrast to yes. the state like the the or what you would think of as the south well it's interesting too though because Ath athens at the time was such a hub for a lot of bands it was, wasn't just rem there was a lot of other bands that were starting to break big but rem was the one in that era that made it up to national prominence and stuff and it's really interesting to do. I put our Athens at that time in the same category as San Francisco in the late 60s or L.A. in that same era, but also Seattle in the early 90s with grunge and everything. I think Athens 
Georgia was about the same time, you know, the same thing. And you got some amazing artists who came out of that era and, you know, B-52s, Indigo Girls, you know, R.E.M. And there's a few others that, you know, might have not gotten as big, but they are very well known in the South or locally and everything. And they got airplay just as much. And it's, you know, pretty awesome to see, you know, the different types of music and everything. Because if you put B-52s and R.E.M. and the Indigo Girls together, each one's completely different. Right. And everything where with grunge, you put Nirvana next to Pearl Jam, next to Alice in Chains and such, you know, you, it, you could tell it's all grunge, you know, type right. thing. But that, but that's the umbrella of progressive music is that wide, right? That you can like, because all three bands that you're talking about, they are stylistically very like different, but they are all under like y'all, you would find them all playing on. 120 minutes on MTV, right? Like, it's like, oh, they're all into so. that yes. banner, right? <laughs> oh, the, the first time I got to see the Indigo Girls in concert in Washington, D.C. when I was in college, um, Michael Stipe got up on stage with them and sang Kid Fears because their first album had just come out. And I was like, oh, my God, that's Michael Stipe. And the girl I was with was like, who? And I was like, that was our only date. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, and I think I think on that self-titled Indigo Girls album, uh, the other three guys all play on a different song mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. uh, I think I'll try to be true. Um, and I think coming out of a scene like Athens, I think every so often, like you said, Mike, um, things coalesce in a certain moment and you get a lot of bursts of creativity from a different from a lot of different points. And I think even if you don't, even if people don't know some of those other Athens bands like Pylon or Love Tractor, I think having bands of that caliber around, like undoubtedly spurred REM mm. to, to greater heights, I think. I oh, think very much so. Being in that, in that primordial soup, if you will. Well, exactly. Yeah. But you guys had that up in Boston too, multiple times and everything. Yeah with different bands and stuff. So it's, it's interesting too. And as REM grew and, you know, with their first couple albums, you know, each album was completely different. It was not the same. And that's one of the things I loved about it. It was a different sound. It's, you could see them evolving as musicians, songwriters, and they just were maturing and, you know, the second album, you know, don't go back, has don't go back to Rockville or, you know, and so many other great, great songs. Pilgrimage is an amazing song. And you have so many great things coming out of it. And, you know, you saw them and as their popularity grew through their first, their first four albums were like, almost like, this is REM. And then five was when they exploded out to the world and MTV really discovered them as mainstream. You didn't see, um, you know, it's the end of the world or the one I love and songs like that on one or 20 minutes anymore. You saw that in regular yeah. airplay. Yeah. They, 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 yeah, they escalated. Yeah. They, they, they broke free from that. Yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's uh, let's uh, one thing that uh, Kevin said I want to go to because you said that Chronic Town it's right there the band is clicking um, what they would become is is here is already in that first album what is it about REM 
that sets them apart, what it is about REM that really resonates with you? What do you really appreciate about the band, about the music? I think it's the chemistry between the four of them. And I think it's a very unique chemistry because I think you've got Peter Buck, who's very cool. And you've got Mike Mills, who's very musical. And you've got Bill Berry, who's very down to earth. And then you've got Michael Stipe, who's very pretentious. And somehow the alchemy of that created something entirely unique. Exactly. You would not expect the four of them to even be friends or hang in the same type of group. And they clicked so well together. And, and the that, way they would take these kind of birdsy and jangle chords and mix it with gang of four bass, along with the kind of inscrutable imagistic lyrics that as, as Mike said, you can barely make out sometimes. I think, uh, I, th I think there's something really magical about them in a way. A lot of bands aren't. It was always funny when sometimes I go to karaoke and people would do the one I love, or they would do fall on me and fall on me. You could barely understand what the hell Mike Stipe is staying in the song. And it's amazing because, you know, the words are up. It's like, those are what the words are. Okay. Because <laughs> if you listen, we used to joke about it when um, IRS um, gave up REM and REM went to Sony. They went um, to Warner's. Did they go to Warner's? I thought they went to Sony. They went to Warner's. When they went to Warner's then, um, when they left IRS. So they, it was funny. I, we used to joke saying that they must have had a clause that Mike Stipe would have to take diction lessons or something <laughs> so people could understand him more. Yeah, he definitely embraced uh, being able to understand him in those, like about four albums in, which in some ways was for good and for some ways was for ill, I think, because I think some of his lyrics on the later albums are a little, are a little lacking. So sometimes I'm like, I, I kind of miss not understanding him. Yeah, I could see that. Definitely understand that. And, but some of the early stuff by them was soul moving. It was touching the songs, the, the music, you know, talk about the passion is one of my favorite REM songs. And it is, you know, and the videos they put out with it were done by artists, not by music producers or, you know, video producers. These were done by local artists and stuff. And, you know, talk about the passion. That one, um, the video was talking about the homeless back in 1983 and everything. It was just amazing. This was a band that made me as a 15 and 16 year old think that wearing a paisley vest was a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Like it's, I do think, and I think when they were sliding into the mainstream in the late eighties, I feel like there was something going on in the culture then. I know, I know last week you all discussed the Pee Wee Herman Christmas special. I feel like, like the emergence of stuff like that and and REM going into the mainstream and, uh, you know, what was going on with David Lynch and Twin Peaks suddenly becoming a huge hit on television. I felt like suddenly uh, America was ready for the avant-garde mm -hmm. in, in a mainstream way. And I don't know if it was like coming out of eight years of Reagan or what, but it definitely seemed like that was a moment. It also yeah, seemed like definitely. to me that, that, the media 
the the record companies were really giving them the this is America's U2 treatment. Absolutely. Like, oh, this yeah. is like the you know everything that you liked about U2 this is like the American version. I mean it's not musically the same at all, but at least as far as you know <laughs> you got your pretentious lead singer, you've got your you know social political lyrics, you've got uh, a different kind of sound um that yet is is unique to them. Like if you are on the radio, I mean even me, if I'm if I'm listening to a, a track and I and an REM song comes on, I know it's REM. Like it's like they are distinct. They have a you know it, Yeah, I agree completely with that, Mikey. It's yeah. it's it was with within the first what 30 seconds, you know it's an REM song, if even that long. And it that's what's kind of cool about it. And it's yeah, interesting. You don't even have to wait for Stipe to sing. Like no. you know it's an REM song before yeah. he even opens his mouth. Or or like mumbles his <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, yes and no. The first couple albums, no, because each one was completely different to a point and everything and it's interesting too because i love rem i will say you know say that to my dying day but i think the band lost a lot of its soul after bill berry left the band i don't think it was the same it didn't it was like almost like something cracked with it you broke the chemistry in some ways yeah absolutely i think bill berry uh was the member of the band who i think had the best ear for saying like, I think this works. I think this is too long. I, I don't think we should do this. I, I do feel like, especially in the few, the first few albums after he left, um, they really needed an editor. They really needed someone to say like more of this, less of that. Mm -hmm. I agree. I agree with that I, completely. I, yeah. I, when was that? He left in, after new adventures in hi-fi, which was their 10th album, Oh wow. uh, okay. which was, so, I think 95. Yeah. Okay. So, so, I mean, he was built like REM put out like, I think 10, like really, really great albums with the four of them. And then Bill Berry left and they put out some albums that, I mean, they have things to recommend them. They're, they're not, they're not worthless, but they're, they're not up to the, to the snuff of the first they're 10. Peak REM. No, it's not the, it's not their Imperial phase. <laughs> right, and, right. and I do think they, the last two albums they put out, were a bit more of a return to form. And I think there was a feeling on their end that they wanted to go out with some album, with some stronger albums. So I think that's one of the reasons they called it quit after that. Also mm -hmm. their insane record deal that they signed with Warners in the mid nineties had, had finally run out for like, I think it was $90 million for, mm -hmm. uh, for a certain number of albums. Exactly. They, they finished their contract and that was it pretty much. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting too, because I remember when Bill Berry collapsed on stage, you know, and because you know, he had a brain in aneurysm that, erupt that ruptured and it was not a pretty sight. And he, you know, he, they gave him time. Hey, take your time, recover. They didn't push him at all to come back or anything. And when he came back, it, he just didn't feel the same spark and he decided to retire from music completely. It's not like he said, oh, I'm going to go do my side projects or anything. He literally left music. Yeah, and that was their first tour in years. Right. They, they took a bunch of years off from tour, touring, um, basically at their commercial peak. 
after the green tour, like after the green tour uh, for out of time and automatic for the people, they did not tour. Mm -hmm. And so when monster came out, it was a big deal that REM was going to tour again. They're playing these enormous venues. Mm -hmm. I think they were in Europe when it happened or something. Yes. And so, yeah. And it, it was a big shock and, you know, they've had, you know, they had, you know, and as the band started getting more, more popular, of course they had to keep on adding members to the band and it started getting, you know, the juggling, you could tell the chemistry was changing anyway with it and everything. And, you know, but it was interesting because you had some of their biggest albums, you know, automatic for the people was huge. And I think a lot of, for a lot of people, not me, but a lot of people think that's their finest moment. I think it's very, very good, mm -hmm. but a lot of, a lot of people will cite automatic for the people as their best album. Um, monster. I know as does not loom as large in their critical reputation. And I didn't like it so much at the time, but I've come around on it a little. I have too. I actually, years. I can actually now listen to what's the frequency kind of, <laughs> and, <I'll, laughs> and not, I, I think, know, not throw up in my mouth. I no. mean, uh, even at the time I loved strange carnages, strange currencies. I thought that was a really pretty song. Mm -hmm. And, um, but some of the stuff after, like I, I really liked "Let Me In." And I really, I think "Crush with Eyeliner" is cool, a cool song. Oh, it's awesome. There's a lot of good stuff on that album, and "New Adventures in Hi-Fi" is is kind of long and dense and weird, but I think that album is also uh, like very, very strong. Mm -hmm. No, exactly. What was the other one that I liked by them in their later years? Was "Bad Day"? I think it was called. Yeah, Bad Day was uh like an extra track on a best of mm -hmm. they put out. Like they did a best of the Warner Brothers years, mm -hmm. I think in two thousand three. And Bad Day was kind of like the new song. Mm -hmm. Um But to I think, me to me it felt like it was like almost like a throwback though to it, it was an old song. Yeah. Mm. It was I think it was it was a song they had and they kind of reworked part of it for End of the World as we know it. Um, but then they re recorded it for that best of so right. that's probably why you like it oh i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> well it explains it awesomely but um they also did at the time uh they did a john lennon tribute album and they did uh dream number nine for john the john lennon song and it was amazing oh there, there are some really great songs uh in those later albums too i think at my at my most beautiful off up is fantastic i really like why not smile um i think I, I think around the sun is is generally considered to be their nadir and i i would co-sign that i think that album sounds really limp um but, but the last two albums had some some great tunes as well so um, i really oh pardon were you no, no, absolutely. No, absolutely. I was just uh, moving on because I wanted to get to make sure we get this in because both of you have been fortunate enough to have seen them live. Mike, I think chronologically you saw them earlier. So what was it like seeing REM? What was the REM live show like? Um, it's interesting. Seeing them earlier, it was very raw. It was very fresh. Um, it was like seeing... 
a mix between a punk rock band and James Taylor in some ways. And that's okay. <laughs> well, cause, cause you had my, you had, you know, the rest of the band, Mike Mills, Peter Buck and Bill Berry, you know, you know, going at it and everything. And basically at, at the early years, Mike Stipe at first didn't want to even acknowledge the audience and everything. He was like, you know, ultimately shy or he didn't, you know, he was artsy or whatever he was. He just didn't want to do anything with the audience. But later, did like, that, did that work live or did it, did oh, it, 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 it put off? Oh, no, it worked perfectly. He was singing to the, okay. at, with his back to the band, to, to the audience and singing it to the band and everything when I first saw him. And then later, of course, he became, started becoming more of a showman and, you know, started growing with it. And by the time, I think the last time I saw them was, I want to say mid, mid nineties was one of the last time I saw them was probably, it was after Bill Berry had left. So it didn't, it didn't even feel like the same band. It was just this huge production. They had other keyboardists. They had, you know, you know, all these, you know, a different drummer, you know, other guitarists. And it was just like, oh, oh, wait, there's, there's Peter. There's, you know, Mike and there's, you know, Michael, you know, and it was just like trying to figure it out and everything. So it was definitely, they grew and grew and grew. And it was like, okay, I'm not going to go see them anymore after that last time. The first time I saw them, which was my first concert, so I didn't have a lot to measure <laughs> to it against. To, right? <laughs> but they had definitely figured out by that point how to play to a big room. And as as Mike said, like Stipe was more of a showman at that point, and he was doing a lot of stuff like where'd you see you know, them banging banging on a chair with a stick? I think, as I said, it was Great Woods. Oh, right, and the last the last time I saw them on their last tour uh, was also at Great Woods. It wasn't called that then, but that was in 2008 for my birthday. My wife got me like third row tickets to see REM then. And I thought it was great at that point. It was only the three of them and a drummer. Uh, I think it was William Reefkin who had drummed in ministry before that, hmm. um, who I think has passed away since. And Peter Holseppel might've been doing some extra instruments, but the show was great. I had a blast. And uh, for the encore, Johnny Marr from the Smiths, who was in the opening band, came out and did Pretty Persuasion and Fall on Me with the band, which was, uh, you know, if you're not going to have Bill Barry, you have Johnny Marr from the Smiths. <laughs> that'll do. Awesome. Yeah. That's it's like, awesome. I'll accept that one. You know, it's it's a good yeah. thing. Yeah. Uh, um, so I, I think maybe when you saw them, Mike, they were, they hadn't figured out how to be a band without Bill Barry. I think. On that last tour, which they weren't billing as their last tour, um, it they were touring the Accelerate album, and it was just sort of another REM tour. But I was I was really up for seeing them. I had not seen them in years, um, and they were great. And I think when they put out Collapse into Now, they just they didn't tour it, and they just said like we're calling it a day as a band. They never did a final tour. That sounds about right. No, um, no. Yeah, because as of what I think. 2011 is when they officially pulled the plug yeah i believe that's correct um do do the others are are they still active musically oh yeah. yes 
Uh, Bill Berry even has a new band out and Peter Buck does a music festival in Mexico that he puts on and he puts out, he puts out a lot of uh, vinyl only albums. Uh, Mike Mills plays around. Uh, I, I my just, friend Josh plays in a band called the baseball project with Peter Buck and Mike Mills um, uh, who I, who I saw in a very tiny club and they did don't, don't go back to Rockville, which I thought was fantastic. That's and, awesome. No, I just saw, um, actually, I saw Mike Mills about two months ago at the Atlanta Symphony Hall. Um, he did um, a project with the ASO, um, basically turning REM music into symphony music. And he actually created his own concerto. And he also played with this uh, amazing fiddle player. And it was awesome and it was like you know because the whole first part of the show was all rem music uh played by the atlanta symphony and then um for the second part mike mills came out and played with his he had like a, a quartet or something and had the symphony playing in the background and then you know and he was playing his new stuff and then he sat at the piano and started playing night swimming the audience just like exploded it was just awesome. And I think because of that crazy 80 or $90 million deal they signed with Warners in the mid-90s, right before record sales really collapsed, um, they don't really have to do anything for the money. It seems like they just kind of <laughs> do what interests them, sure. which is cool. Um, I do think that one of the things I find interesting about REM in the 2020s is I don't think REM – have much of a cultural footprint, especially with uh, people younger. Like I, you don't hear them reference as like a big influence that often. Uh, you don't, uh, you know, I don't, you don't hear them on the radio that much compared to, I think some of the contemporaries they had at the time, like, like, like say you two or even, even something like the cure, I think are a bigger deal than REM. I feel like REM have in a way been like weirdly forgotten. Hmm. That is interesting. Um, uh, yeah. I was wondering, you know, I that getting ready to ask that question as we're getting ready to wrap up, but um, what is their legacy? Like what is the legacy of REM? Do you feel? That's a good question because REM it was they slowly creeped across and in a good way they started influencing and a lot of like the newer bands some of the newer bands now credit rem for start you know as their inspirations and such and that's pretty cool to hear when you hear that type of thing do i think rem has the lasting factor, like when you think of giants of the 80s and stuff? No, I don't. To me in my heart, yes, because they're one of my favorite bands. But to the general public, no. It's like um, when, you know, I played it, like was playing it for William or something. He's He's like, oh, this is cool. Can we listen to this? You know, it's not younger kids don't go, oh, I want to listen, you know, ki the younger kids if they want to hear something old, they'll want to hear the Beatles or the Rolling Stones or something, or even the, you know, from the eighties, 
you know, Tom Petty or, you know, some of the other punk rock bands, the Smiths or something, they won't go, oh, REM type thing. But I put them in the same category as the Talking Heads, the Cars, you know, all those type of bands and everything. I think they they were one of the biggest bands of the late 80s, early 90s. You couldn't go anywhere without hearing REM. And you hear REM now on the oldies station, which is in just, the supermarket. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I do think uh, a lot of bands, especially bands who have a big underground following, who are trying to move into the mainstream, I think REM are the signposts they use of how to do that right. I think That's... REM did that more successfully than most bands in terms of. I don't think fame hit them all at once. So I think they dealt with it better than a lot of bands did. Um, you know, like you look at, uh, say, I mean, Nirvana is the obvious example of, of how badly that can go. But even Pearl Jam seemed to, you know, hit it really big and then shy away from it immediately. Um, so I, I think R.E.M. are a band that people look to for that as well. Um, and I also think they're just, they're one of the great American bands, even if they're not as canonized as I think they should be. I, I think uh, I think the music is strong enough that it's due for a rediscovery. I mean, it's it, all, it, all I think it'll take is like one needle drop in a Stranger Things episode and people will be all about R.E.M. again. <laughs> that, that, you know what? That That is definitely a possibility. And the other thing about them too, I think that's a credit to them. And this, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I mean, it was four guys core until almost to the like you know pretty much to the end it wasn't like there was not a lot of you know drama with the band it wasn't like the band members they didn't split up and have a great dramatic thing and people went solo and stuff like that it was mainly just like these guys in this band for the length of time that they were they were relevant has any band broken up so amicably like you never hear any of them say a bad <laughs> word about the other if they have like a reissue coming out, you know, they'll do interviews together. They they really just are are like, well, you know, we did this for 30 years and we feel like we did everything we wanted to do. And now we want to do some other stuff. Uh, there don't seem to be any hard feelings. I genuinely don't think they're going to get back together unless it's for, I, I could see them playing like a one-off show for some sort of, charity or political cause perhaps right. at some point but that's it like i don't see them ever putting out another album or anything like that no i don't either and i don't see them doing the big comeback tour of rem and everything you know it's it's like i just heard an interview recently with mike stipe and he's getting ready to put out a solo album and they asked him you know what about the other members of you know rem i said and he was like oh they're doing good you know, basically, and that was it. <laughs> he didn't. He didn't say anything else about them or anything. And it's like that says it all right there. Yeah, yeah. All right. So as we uh, finally wrap up, one last question: um, We're celebrating the debut of Chronic Town, but um, you know, and feel free to pick that if you want. But I, I'm just wondering for listeners out there, especially people who are not as familiar with REM, if you have something that you can recommend that everybody. Even if you're an old fan or a novice, whatever, what is something absolutely that they need to check out from R.E.M.? What is a, a track or an album, a 
EP, a whatever. Um, I don't know. We'll start with you, Kevin. This is hard. Um, I'm going <laughs> to go, I'm going to go with their second album reckoning, which uh, is not as beloved as murmur, but I think it has higher highs than murmur. I think the really good songs on reckoning are some of the best, really good songs on any album ever. And it starts off like a mother effer with uh Harbor Co into seven Chinese brothers into South central rain. So um, I'm going to say their second album reckoning is what I think people should check out, but you would be hard pressed to do wrong with any of their first seven or eight albums. Mm-hmm. That's a good one. What about you? Um, damn it. I hate agreeing with this guy, you know, because, because <laughs> it's true. It is there. You cannot go wrong with any of their first, I'm going to go for their first seven albums also. Um, but it's interesting too, because those albums, I, I'm more particular to the IRS years than the Warner years. And, you know, when they became, you know, more popular and, you know, I I like shiny, happy people. I like night swimming. I like man, man on the moon is a fantastic song and everything and but you know for rem you know for me fall on me or south central rain or you know talk about the passion you know or radio free europe awesome songs and i can listen to those all day and not get tired of listening to it but i'm going to put out there a fun um compilation of rem songs uh done as a tribute album it's called surprise your pig if you ever get a chance to listen to it it has a lot of alternative bands doing their take of rem music but none of the songs are sound like rem songs they do them to their own take which is awesome because a lot of times when you hear tributes and stuff it's the bands trying to sound like the actual band this is this is done by all smaller bands and i think a lot of the bands are from around athens and everything and it's awesome it is and uh jawbreaker who eventually supplanted rem in the favorite band category for me i'll cover (laughs) pretty persuasion on that compilation Mm -hmm. exactly so it is it is a great great cd if you ever get a chance to listen to it and everything the version of it's the end of the world is beyond belief on that one so mm. i love cool. that there's i love that there's a cover of we walk by steel pull bathtub on there that's just <laughs> noise that's just the sound of people playing pool mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that's our cover of we walk mm-hmm. <laughs> well, very is. cool I am, uh, uh, this is awesome. I, I learned a lot, actually. I knew of REM, obviously, Mike, as Mike pointed out, you couldn't really throw a rock in the eighties or late eighties without and early nineties without, you know, hitting, uh, an REM song. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and, uh, or a video or whatever. Um, and they certainly made an impact. Um, and it's interesting how their legacy has, has changed. And so like, like Kevin said, I fully, I would not be surprised if something, you know, at some point puts them right back, you know, right back in it. Like if it can happen with Kate Bush, it can happen with R.E.M., right? Oh, man. And and I know like, like you can, like you can make some, you, you can make your shiny, happy people cracks. But on that same album, you've got Country Feedback, which is one of their like darkest and best and most affecting songs. It's got Stipe's best lyrics 
Um, oh my God. So let's, even when they were doing the, these kind of songs that were a little weirdly dopey, they were still putting out songs that were like brain meltingly good. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Well, thanks guys for talking all about REM and uh, we'll be right back after we take this quick break. It's the end of the world as we know it, folks, but we feel fine. Night swimming deserves a quiet night. Hi, this is Ashley Pauls with this week's Box Office Buzz. I don't know about you, but I find it really hard to believe that we're already nearing the end of 2022 and it's time to start talking about end of the year wrap-ups where we talk about our favorite movies and TV shows of the year, holiday season movies coming out, like where did all the time go? There's been a lot of great things so far this year and more still to come. James Cameron hopes that your favorite movie of the year is Avatar Way of the Water And I'm sure he's also hoping that it's going to be the biggest hit of the year so far. Is it going to beat Wakanda forever? I would be really surprised if it did. But you know what? We could all be surprised. So I'm going to go into it with an open mind. Lots of stuff still going over on streaming. I am in the process of watching the Willow Revival series. Rewatched the movie and was really delighted by how much I enjoyed revisiting that film and hoping to write a blog post this week talking about my thoughts on the movie and the new series. I've also been catching up on Wednesday, which is super fun. I'm not really that familiar with the Adams Family as a franchise, but I heard so much good stuff about Wednesday that I decided to check the show out, and I think it's great. That's why I tend to not try to be judgmental about quote-unquote reboots or reimagining because things like that you never know what is going to be a fan's first encounter with a franchise so I was never really super interested in Adam's family stuff until I heard so much about this series so it's always good to bring in new fans that's it for this week's box office buzz if you're looking for more entertainment related content be sure to check out my blog over on the ESO podcast website Welcome to Earth Station Trek, a show that talks about Star Trek, from the early days on NBC to the future on Paramount Plus and everywhere in between. We cover topics like Star Trek versus reality. Did the board get better or worse? Finding the good in bad episodes. Pop culture in Trek. Star Trek pets. Vulcan romance. Religion in Trek. Umox for fun and pleasure. Kirk versus Picard and why Cisco is better. Plus reviews of all the latest episodes. Check us out on your favorite podcast platform or the ESO Network. And now it's time for the creative outlet segment. And we have two wonderful young ladies with us. Of course, let's welcome Kelly Thompson and Meredith McLaren. How are you doing? Welcome to the show. Good, good. I'm really happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for having us. I'm good too. Well, we're actually lucky enough to, you know, the fine folks at Image Comics actually reached out to us and said, hey, you got to talk to these ladies. You know, they're just awesome. So you guys want to talk to us about Black Cloak number one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I'm glad Image uh, reached out to you. We've been doing a lot of these interviews and stuff. And um, Meredith and I both commented that because this is that, well, it's my first real book at Image. I did one 
of the shorts in the silver coin or one of the stories in the silver coin uh, anthology story that image did that uh, Michael Walsh's book. So, but that's really my first thing with image. And so this is big for me and Meredith has been here before, but she said that this had been like a much bigger rollout. And so it was sort of crazy for us. So we really appreciate you taking the time. I know, um, we're we're playing on a big stage in that it's image but you know it's still an indie book and you know you got to fight hard to sort of get people to notice it especially if you're doing something a little different or you know a little unexpected so we've been really ex- excited about the support and excitement images have for the book that's awesome and i'm very, very excited for you guys very much so and so tell tell everybody out there who hasn't been lucky enough to take a peek at this comic get all about it and how you guys came up to it so um i brought meredith in to work on this sort of weird little idea i had called uh black cloak that is a basically it's a detective story so it's got a procedural element you've got a murder in your first issue and you're trying to solve that murder but the setting is a sort of blade runnery sci-fi fantasy world so you've got all sorts of creatures and you've got a lot of tech and magic sort of fighting with each other a little bit um it's a really incredible world um and we're really having fun building it um but then you know it's just got this sort of very steady procedural thread that sort of leads you through it to sort of tying together sort of the politics and the problems in this world with, you know, some, some big murdery stuff. Yeah. Uh, Kelly likes to preface it a lot by saying that she just put all the things that she loves in one place. And so um, <laughs> I, I really approach it that way too. It's like everything I love to draw is here. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not, I don't, I don't want to be like, oh yeah, we're out here reinventing the wheel and we're geniuses. But I do think there's some real joy in not, I don't know, whatever. It's your peanut butter in my chocolate. No, your chocolate's in my peanut butter. Like, like why, why should sci-fi have to not have magic and fantasy creatures in it? Like, I don't know why they can't be blended together and like create something fun and interesting. And it's not that nobody's done that before but you know they tend to be seen as pretty separate things like oh lasers in space sci-fi magic and you know cloaked elves fantasy and i'm like what let's do it let's do it all i'm like that i'm like that taco girl gif or whatever like (laughs) why not why not both what's what's gonna hurt us like and especially working with someone like meredith you know she draws a lot of inspiration from a lot of disparate places like i feel like she's really interested in like you know she's really inspired by a lot of comics and fashion and locations and you know she travels way more than i do so she's inspired by her travel locations and again it's like you know we didn't want to make something that looked just western but we also didn't want to make something that looked just eastern especially you know we're both white people so like maybe not but i think the world of kiros and the world of black cloak is really it really benefits from Meredith, especially, but I hope me a little bit too, like just having a lot of different interests and tastes and like not agreeing with the idea that they should stay separate, like blend them all up and let's see what we get. I I find it really fun. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's pretty awesome. 
looking at the the first issue the preview that we got it i mean it looks great looks fantastic um obviously yes uh, i i find that it, uh i i also recognize the uh procedural element of it um but in a, a much different setting um kelly I, i'm really familiar with your work for marvel um and uh especially your run you did um uh hawkeye right mm-hmm. and uh um uh, Jessica Jones, right? Uh, yeah. And I, I I love those books. Um, so thank, thank you for those. Um, but how was it to create this whole universe? Go from working in a universe where you get to play with toys, but now these toys you're building yourself. It's it's tricky. I mean, I've done, you know, Meredith and I, one of my very first projects in comics was a, a creator-owned uh, book for Dark Horse that Meredith and I did together called Heart in a Box. And, you know, there was some world building we were doing there in the sense that there's a non-normal element that sort of runs through that book. But you're right. But that book is otherwise very straightforwardly the real world. And so, yeah, this is a lot to take on. But having worked with Meredith before and knowing what she can do, I like, and also knowing how much our interests collided, like we're both very interested in like monsters and you know, fantasy and mythology and like these kinds of bigger stories that have sort of iconic ideas in them. So I, I knew that I was sort of partnering with the right person that I could, you know, sort of uh, vomit up a lot of words to her about like the kind of ideas I was interested. And I knew we could get on the page really quickly and not to overhype Meredith, but I just really think she's a genius. I think she, I think she designs in a really wow. smart way. And I also, I also think she's got a style that is on the surface, doesn't feel like a fantasy style, which I think plays to our strengths a little bit. Like it's very clean and sharp and not sort of fussy in a way that sometimes fantasy stuff is. And I don't mean fussy as a negative. I just mean more detailed, you know, more sort of scratchy, sometimes looser, but Meredith's got a really clean, tight style that I think so even when she designs like this crazy character, it still always feels really like her, which allows for a lot of consistency across the book to me and how it looks and holds together. And all of that seems like it's not a big deal, but I think in cohesive world building, it's honestly the linchpin. And that's why, you know, pick the right artists because they're, they're going to be building those. They're going to be putting those blocks in, you know, whatever you think in your head, it's going to be they're in charge of like really bringing that to life. And I'm very lucky to have Meredith on that. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. I, I, <laughs> it's funny that you say that because it's like when we first started and I knew it was a fantasy book, I was a uh, fantasy sci-fi, but the fantasy part, I'm like, okay. Um, I was looking at books like monstrous and stuff. And I'm like, my heart ached because I'm like, I do not have <laughs> the time to put in this amount of detail. <laughs> I mean, listen, Monstrous is beautiful and I don't make any argument, you know, for us over them. It's more of just my argument of, hey, why not us plus them? Like, I, you know, I think mm -hmm. um, Meredith did have concerns, you know, when we were first talking about the world, I was telling her I didn't want it to be just like a straight up fantasy book that I really wanted to infuse it with these sort of Blade Runner sci-fi elements, not just because I love sci-fi, but also because I think the Blade Runner of it all, I mean, the reason I dropped that isn't just because of the color palettes and stuff, it's because that also has 
a detective. I mean, you're following a detective doing his job basically mm-hmm. uh, in a sense. Right. Um, and so, but she expressed some concern. She's like, I really like that idea. She was like, but you know, I know some people who are sort of playing with those things. And so I want to make sure we're doing something different in that. And so we really did our due diligence, I think, in making sure we were doing something different. But to be honest, I was never worried about it because I just don't think Meredith's stuff looks like anyone else's, you know? She really brings a a uniqueness to the work. And so in my mind, like, I wanted to be, like, cautious about it and, 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 and do the right thing and make sure we weren't biting anyone's stuff or whatever. But I was never really worried about it because when I look around... I can see the stuff Meredith's influenced by sometimes, but her style really just always looks wholly her own to me. And I think it, I think it paid off. I think Black Cloak doesn't really look like anything else out there. Yeah. Well, and then also Kelly writes such characters and environments that are like, they're palpable. You can feel them. Like they don't feel like, like a different, I don't even know how to describe it. It's like, you know, it, it feels like a, a conversation, a casual conversation, you know? Yes. It's good. Yeah. I feel that as well in a writing. Um, but Meredith, I, I must admit, this is the first time I've seen your work and I'm blown away. I, I do agree Thank with you. Kelly that it's very, um, it's unique, but it, it seems to be grounded in some familiar aspects um and the storytelling is unique um what are your influences uh i definitely grew up on a lot of anime <laughs> and then, <laughs> yeah that's that's no i, could, I, could, I definitely be, could see it i definitely yeah, could see it. nobody's going to be surprised by that but then i moved from anime to uh french and european comic books which i think influence a lot of my color aspirations like i still feel i'm like i'm working towards something there because they have these beautiful like animation quality um books out there. So uh definitely those are definitely the two main sources. Mhm. Mhm. And I have to ask too in addition to um uh, your work at obviously the or one thing I noticed was the the color palettes that you guys are using to create the world as Kelly mentioned it's a very much a um uh a procedural um, usually detective stories, murder mysteries are kind of darkish, especially when you're in a dystopian sort of end of the world kind of story. Um, and even some fantasy elements uh, or fantasy stories I find are lean towards more to the dark side. But you're, uh, is it just to be, I mean, obviously you're not being just different just to be different, but what what decisions were there when you were choosing the color palettes to, to choose from? Um... I know that when Kelly first mentioned Blade Runner, the only thing about that that scared me was I'm like, I remember watching Blade Runner and I remember not being able to parse a lot of what was happening because <laughs> it was so dark. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, is that the avenue we want to go? <laughs> so I think, I think neo-noir gets overused a lot. So forgive mm-hmm. me for overusing it here, but I do think it really applies here because I do think the difference between, you know, when you've got typical noir, one of the aesthetic differences is I would think of a typical noir as being very dark and moody and maybe even black and white, depending. And then when you say neo-noir, my, the aesthetic to me immediately shifts to more neons. 
a more modern detective story and sometimes sci-fi, although obviously uh, like futuristic stories. And um, so I wanted to lean into that. I wanted to lean into this idea that this walled city of Kiros, which is supposedly the last city in the known world, that because it has to encompass everything, it has everything. So you've got this sort of older, more Western style palaces that are at like the top of the city. And then like, as it gets lower and lower, it gets darker and darker so that these people are sometimes not even seeing the sun, which then gives us a real excuse for, all right, well, what is this, all this neon lighting look like? What do these districts look like? But then we also have things like the trees, which is one of my favorite neighborhoods, um, which is more organic. And then the lagoon, which is one of the only sort of pure places beyond the castle where you're like actually seeing natural light and stuff. So we just wanted to give it a lot of levels and corners to explore i'm not saying there's nothing outside of those walls but our focus was on this is their world what lives inside this world and uh, what lives inside the city and for for reasons nobody is really talking about you can't really leave the city so we got to make it everything you know from Mm -hmm. nightclubs and farms to a castle and police department and a lagoon and a video game thing you know i mean it's just everything so uh fortunately for me meredith is really good at switching those things up she's gotten in the habit of sending me she knows i'm so particular about color She's I'm just in the habit trying of- to be efficient, <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> the greatest idea ever. It's the greatest idea ever. I'm just sad that I'm so predictable. She's taken to, if she starts coloring a scene, she'll send me like the first page and she's like, what do you, how do you feel about the tones? And I'll be like, oh my God, I love it. Or I'll be like, mm, what about blue? <laughs> you know, whatever. But she's, uh, I think, I think Meredith's a magician with color, especially. And I always push her a little bit on that. Um, because I think that she just sort of naturally on her first pass does it so well that like occasionally, you know, you just stop because when something seems great, you're like, okay, I'm done. And so I do think sometimes, I think it happened, it was one of the great examples of something that happened very early with us on this book in particular with also our our, our um, editor, Charles, where we were really messing with that first page because it's the first page and it's also an exterior view of the city. And so it was going to say so much and we had to be careful about it. So that was like one of the pages we went back and forth the most on. And like, when I look at those two now, you know, when she sent me the first color pass, I loved it so much. I was so in love with it. But yet when I look at where we landed, where we ended up compared to that first one she sent, it's like night and day. So I I think it's just a good testament to how important collaboration is in comics. Like it's very hard to make something alone in your room by yourself and not have people you trust looking at it and going, holy crap, you nailed this or you got it, but is it far enough? You know, or like, I I just think that stuff is so important and I, it's important too. I mean, Meredith sometimes gives me, you know, she told me not so long ago, this, line she really liked and honestly the compliment stayed with me for months because it it really meant something to me that I can give her so much text that she parses and turns into this beautiful stuff and that anything I would say would stay with her long enough through everything we go through I don't know it meant a lot so (laughs) it's a great it's a great thing it's great to work with people you like who are good at their jobs 
and I mean, <laughs> sort of everything. <laughs> I'm, I'm so I, I don't know pleased. what's happening. Oh, oh sorry. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, I'm just, I'm so pleased that Kelly has pushed me the way that she has because I've made so many tremendous strides just in figuring out coloring passes because of this book. And I'm just like, I I really feel like I advanced with it. <laughs> and, uh, I, I totally did. Yeah. I'm really, I really, really happy I really think that. you did. I so really how, think you did. So, how many issues are there going to be of the series? So the first arc is six issues and where we leave that, we leave it in a place where it wraps up this sort of primary story here and sort of sets us up for the continued things, the continued stories of Black Cloak. And I think that can take a lot of different shapes and forms. And I think what it ultimately takes sort of depends on the audience. You know, if people really go nuts for it, I think we'll do a lot in this world. Um, if, if people like it, we'll do as much as we can, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's, but I, I know fans don't love that answer. You'd love to like commit to something knowing it's going to be 50 issues. And listen, I love that too, but that's just not sort of the reality. Of course, who who doesn't um, want that? Of course. But I think we'll know. I think we'll know pretty early in 2023, like how well we're doing and how much we can afford to invest in doing more. Uh, we have a lot of interesting ideas, and one of the great things about Black Cloak is that while the second story probably does continue Essex and Pack stories, we can also do side stories that are just set in that world that have nothing to do with them. So the world of Black Cloak is very exciting to me. It's um, Meredith and I talked a little bit on another interview about it reminding us a little bit of arcane. Um, I don't know. That's, that's based on the video game. It's an animation. Mm -hmm. Um, It's very good for anyone who hasn't seen it. Um, It's uh, based off the uh, league of legends. That's right. right? Yeah. Yeah. The league of legends games, which I've never played, but which my partner and I watched arcane and we just fell so in love with it. And I do think it was like, world building and character work and it really reminded me like if you can nail that stuff you can really win the hearts and minds of the people you know that's Mm -hmm. awesome that is really awesome when is the uh first issue available uh it'll be out 1 11 23 so second week of uh the new year and it is oversized it's like 50 plus pages for Um, only four only 4.99 so Definitely nice. check it out yeah. at your local comic shop, folks. Local comic shop, people. We, put, we love our local comic shops. Shop so. local. Yes. <laughs> yes, whenever you can. Absolutely, will, absolutely. Is there anything will, else you guys want to promote or anything? That's really the, that's, well, that's what we're doing right now, man. We're pretty, we're pretty focused. I mean, I've got some Marvel stuff still going on and, and, uh, I've got some other stuff planned for 2023, including, uh, the call with Maddie Adelius, who, um, uh, Michael, you said you like Jessica Jones. He was the artist yep. on Jessica Jones. So yep. he and I are yep. doing the call. There's a, there's an ad for that in your first issue of Black Cloak too. So. What, wonderful. Um, that yeah. is awesome, guys. Well, thank you for taking the time to join with us. We really do appreciate it and looking forward to seeing what happens with Black Cloak. Awesome. Thank you. For thank having you us. guys so much for having us. Absolutely. Let's take a quick break and then we'll close up the show. Mm-hmm. 
Hey everybody, Michelle here with an Iconic Rock Talk Show moment. And in the news today, Mick Fleetwood's balls. A pair of wooden balls on a string worn by Mick Fleetwood in the famous photo that graces the Rumors album cover went up for auction on December 4th through Julian's Auctions. They brought in a total of 128,000 US dollars, 104,000 British pounds. What did you think I was talking about? Uh, the auction featured items from Mick Fleetwood, John McVie, and Christine McVie. Uh, they included a black felt top hat that Mick Fleetwood gave to Stevie Nicks with uh, two stuffed crows on it. There is a holiday gift for you. Uh, Basses played by John McVie. And from Christine McVie, uh, the dress that she wore on the back cover of Rumors. Of course, the auction was put together uh, before she passed away. Uh, she passed away just three days before the auction actually took place, and her items went up in value. Uh, the dress they thought would bring in $10,000. It brought in $56,250. Uh, part of the proceeds from this auction went to Benefit Music Cares, which is an organization that provides short-term financial assistance for uh, people working in the music industry who have uh, financial need, whether it's from health issues or disasters or other issues like that. This has been the Iconic Rock Talk Show Moment, and we will catch you next time. Check out the Modern Musicology Podcast, where each week we talk about things like... What makes a great drummer? Our favorite rock documentaries. Songs we love by artists we don't love. Our favorite concert memories. Songs that should have been singles. And all of our favorite music from the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and now. Do not use Modern Musicology if you're allergic to it. Modern musicology may produce itching, dizziness, vertigo, temporary blindness, or heart palpitations. Do not taunt modern musicology. Ask your doctor about switching to modern musicology. So that's going to wrap up this interesting new format of an episode for us. Thank you, everybody, for listening. It's been a ton of fun. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Oh, thanks for having me. I so appreciate this opportunity to geek out about R.E.M., a band I have loved for most of my life. Yeah, and, you know, the, I was already an old person already when you were <laughs> started going to see that. Um, anything you want to shout out about or yell out about? Sure. Um, I will say that uh, I have... A podcast called Gleaming the Tube, which is about movies that involve skateboarding in some capacity, however minor. And uh, we're about to record this week an episode about Pee-wee's Big Adventure and Pee-wee's Big Holiday for people uh, who enjoyed. More Pee-wee! Yes, for people who enjoyed last week's um, Pee-wee-centric episode of Earth Station One. And Mike, you should watch Pee-wee's Big Adventure. It is the best thing Tim Burton has ever done. Um, I will also say that next month in Boston, Massachusetts... On uh, Martin Luther King Jr. weekend is the Aresia Science Fiction and Fantasy Convention, and I will be there doing a few panels. Uh, I believe I'll be doing, the schedule's not out yet, but uh, I believe I'm moderating a panel on the year in Star Wars, and I'm going to be a panelist on the year in TV. Uh, as of now, uh, as Dragon Con fans know, uh, subject to change, but that's where things stand. So uh, if you're in the area, come out to that. That's awesome. We'll have links to those in our show notes. Because I know Kevin Eldridge has talked about Aresia for years to us and everything. 
Yeah. Uh, that's how I know him. That's probably how I know the network. Um, but yeah, I, I think Kevin Alters is going to be a panelist there as well. But I will leave it to him to announce the things he's doing. <laughs> well, fine. We will let him do that then. Cool. Yeah. And Mr. Mike, we made it through another one, my friend. We did. And as always, it's my pleasure. Anything you want to shout out about, sir? Yeah, you know, it's interesting since we're talking about REM uh, and uh, Athens and Georgia and everything. I moved to Atlanta, Georgia in 1993. And um, when I moved here um, and when I, uh, I quickly, one of the things that made me, when I first visited Atlanta, one of the things that first, like, made me think this is a cool place to be um, was a station that started in 1992 called 99X. It was an alternative rock station, progressive music. They played R.E.M., Green Day, No Doubt, like, you know, you name it. And I discovered uh, it was a great time. I discovered a lot of bands uh, through because of that station. Um, and it, it did a lot. They did a lot of events. They hosted festivals. It was uh, they were a, an amazing station. I was a big fan. I even as a card carrying member of the 99X Club. Um but as you know, as what happens with radio and uh, and all the stupid things that uh, go on there with corporations and all that kind of stuff, 99X died out. Uh, I think officially it was like 2008 or something. But by that time, they were not relevant and they they, they were long past their gluster uh, muster. But but they are back. 99X is now uh, on. Um, it's a nostalgia station, so they're not playing like the. Uh, you know, they're not trying to recreate the magic. Instead, it's just more like, hey, you remember this stuff, uh, these songs and everything like that. But uh, it's now on they were on 99.7. Uh, now they're on um, 100.5. Uh, but I you know what? I listened to them the other day. I was in the car. I don't usually listen to the radio at all. I usually listen to podcasts, but I finally t I turned the radio on. And I switched it to 100.5. And the first thing I heard was the 99X, like, you know, bumper. And I, it just took me right back to the early days when I moved here and all that great music that came out in the early 90s. And that that station was an experience. So nostalgia worked for me on that respect. You know, I kind of was hoping that they might, you know, do something, you know, uh, more, like more relevant. But, you know, we'll take what we can get. But uh, I'm glad to see that 99X is back. That's pretty cool and everything. I heard for right now until the first of the year, they don't even have any of the announcers or anything. It's all. Yeah. I, I didn't hear any, I didn't hear any DJs. I just heard, they just did tracks and, and then, and ads of course. And then the, um, and then the bumper, uh, which is the old bumper. Um, so uh, I, I don't know what their plans are as far. I mean, you to get the gang back together, uh, Fran and Steve and, and all those other people, I mean, that would be probably pretty difficult. Um, but, uh, and maybe a bit sad, <laughs> but, uh, um, I would, uh, you know, I'm, and I'm not saying I'm going to listen every day, but it's nice to know that they exist and it's a cool place on the dial that I can hit if I, if I want to just chill out and listen to some cool alternative tunes. What song got you the most pumped? Uh, well, right after the 99X, I was telling you, right after I heard the 99X bumper, it went right into, um, Pump It Up by Elvis Costello. And I was like, I, that, I'm done. Like, this is like, I'm, I'm here. I'm sold. Like, this is like, crank, crank it up. <laughs> that, that sold me that they're back. Um, so, uh, very cool. And I don't know, you know, I mean, 
I guess the kids today will probably think of this. It's an oldie channel. Like when my dad, when I was riding around with my dad and he was listening to like the fifties and sixties tunes. And I was just like, Oh, it's the oldies channel. So this is, this is my oldies channel. Okay. Grandpa, calm down (laughs) and get out of my yard. Exactly. Damn kids. Damn kids. Um, one thing I wanted to do a quick shout out about is, you know, we're coming up to the holidays. A lot of people are, you know, shopping and going to, you know, celebrate with friends and families. But before you do that and everything, you know, some of these natural disasters that have hit, you know, around the country over the last year have not gone away, folks. And especially down in places like Fort Myers, Florida, where the hurricane pretty much destroyed the community and such, you got to, you know, try to think about, let's be thankful for what you have and everything. And if you have any extra shekels or money, I'm not going to say, you know, don't donate towards the ESO Patreon or anything, but, you know. Not going to go that far. I'm not going to go that far, folks. No, no, no. But no, seriously, um, the American Red Cross is doing an amazing job to be able to help a lot of these peoples who have had their houses destroyed and they haven't even had a chance to rebuild yet. Um, This was devastating. It's one of the worst natural disasters that have happened in the United States over the last decade. And it's just, you know, devastating, especially now you're getting close to the holidays and you don't have a home or you're living in a FEMA trailer or worse. Or, you know, even stuck in a hotel somewhere, you know, because you had to evacuate and you couldn't go back to your home. You know, this is, you know, the time of year when you look at, you know, yourself in the mirror and go, you know, I've got this, this and this going for me. You know, why not help out another individual? Why not do that? And, you know, I try to help out in my little ways and hopefully you could too also. And, you know, when I say helping out, You know, it could be financial. It could be with your time. You know, go volunteer at a shelter. Go volunteer at a soup kitchen. Go volunteer at, you know, any kind of, you know, charity event. You know, there's always people looking for help and such. And, you know, but there's also people looking to take advantage of it too. So vet out who you're volunteering or giving to charity with to make sure they're legit, you know, and that's just something to be careful for. And, you know, I really think when you put your head to it, I think it's a great thing to be able to help another individual who's not as fortunate as what you have. And I feel fortunate to be able to do this podcast every week. Well, now twice a week. So, you know, it's pretty awesome that we're able to do that. And you know what? Running into 2023, it's only going to be bigger and better for all of us. Let's help with those who can't, you know, hold up for themselves and need the help. Sometimes people are too proud to ask for the help. And so just do it, folks. That's what you need to do. All right. Off my soapbox now. So we are going to be back again next week. And our next week is going to be a very interesting one. We are having two episodes out again next week, folks. You join us early in the week when we, Mike and I are going to be reviewing Wednesday. That's right. We are going to be looking at the Netflix series and 
it was awesome. I just can't wait to talk about that. It was the show that has my 11 year old niece asking me about the cramps. That's awesome. (laughs) That is awesome. That is really awesome. It introduced the cramps to a whole new generation. And oh God, that dance was just awesome. (laughs) It's like, how many, you know, Wednesday Adams are we going to see now at Dragon Con next year? But yeah, we already saw quite a few. So yeah, that's probably triple. Yeah. Yeah. Tenfold. Exactly. So, Wednesday, we're going to be doing that. And then we're going back to the movies and we were looking at Avatar, Way of the Water. Yay. Woo. Ha. You know, so you can tell I'm excited about that one, folks. <laughs> so please join us for, you know, and tell all your friends that you now Earth Station One is available twice a week, not just once. So we're going to be bringing you twice the fun, twice the adventures. It's going to be a ton of fun, folks. And of course, we definitely, you know, as always, love to hear from you guys. So if you get a chance, please write us at feedback at earthstation1.com. Remember, you could always find Earthstation One wherever fine podcasts are found. And guess what, folks? Now Earthstation One is in video format. So we could be found up on YouTube. Please subscribe and tell all your friends about us. And we're waving at you right now. Yes, you. You know who I'm talking to. You're watching. I know you are. So there, you know, definitely check us out. On behalf of myself, Mike Faber, of course, Mr. Mike Gordon, Mr. Kevin Cafferty, thank you for listening. And you know what? Hope everyone has a great week and we will see you next time on Earth Station One. Peace. And we are done. Ciao, folks. Yay. And don't, you know, don't go back to Rockville and waste another year. That's my word of advice. Everybody hurts sometimes. You've been listening to the Earth Station One podcast, a show by fans for fans. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe to our show up on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are found. While you're up there, please rate us and remember to leave feedback. It would greatly be appreciated. And remember to tell your friends all about us while you're at it. Our Station One is available on most social media sites where you can join some really great topics or chats. Help support our show by shopping through our Amazon.com link or purchasing very cool ESO Network clothing and merchandise at our T Public store. Links to both are found on the top of our ESO Network webpage. But if you have a patron of the ESO Network by backing us up on Patreon for as little as 25 cents a week, go to patreon.com slash ESO Network to sign up. We want to hear from you. Please write us at earthstation1 at esonetwork.com or call us at 404-963-9057. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time here on the Earth Station One podcast. Peace, and we're done. This has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping for the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek.